0: AMEM the Alpha Male Entertainment Network Broadcasting from Humidor 1A in the Cigar City of Tampa, Florida. USA
1: We celebrate America's native spirit on August 2nd, 2007. The United States Senate declared September as National Bourbon Heritage Month. And each and every year we celebrate the quintessential American spirit. And as we know, that all bourbons are whiskey, but all whiskeys are not bourbon. And our guest in the first hour, a legend in the world of bourbon, one of the great master distillers of all time, Fred the III will join us momentarily as we enjoy bourbon whiskey and we talk Jim Beam, the world's number one selling bourbon, Jim Beam. Cannot go wrong, my favorite is the Jim Beam Black. In fact, I still have some of the Jim Beam Double Black, Double Age. We'll talk with Fred about that, and we discuss everything bourbon, and as we have learned, there is a big difference between whiskey and bourbon, and there are some specific rules, and there's nobody better than to talk about that with legendary master distiller, Fred the III of Jim Beam. Fred, it is great to have you on the Cigar Dave Show once again. The last time we had you on, I think it was about three years ago, and as always, we enjoy talking bourbon and talking Jim Beam, and you are a direct descendant of Jim Beam.
2: That's correct, Dave. Yeah, it's my pleasure to be chatting with you this morning.
1: Now you were up in Kentucky, and, and before we go on, first of all, a big hearty congratulations! There is a future master distiller in the No family because uh, your son and your daughter-in-law just had a baby.
2: Just had a baby last night, Frederick Booker Noe the fifth, and we are going to call him Booker. So uh,
1: outstanding, Frederick Booker No the fifth. Yep, and as we yep. talked, you said, hey, if he wants to become a master distiller, great. If he wants to do something else, that's fine, too. And I'm sure, Fred, you must have a very special bourbon tucked away somewhere, some barrel that's aging secretly for these special occasions. Man,
2: I don't know about a special barrel. i got a few bottles around that are special. I might have to have a little taste of a 25th anniversary Booker's honor. This, this, my little grandson's... Uh, Great grandfather, so that'd be, be fun. Might even find Not... cigars somewhere too. Who knows?
1: Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Got to have a celebratory. Cigar. Listen, cigars and bourbon go hand in hand. Fred, let's yes, talk sir. about bourbon whiskey because. Many people, there is a misconception that all that bourbon has to be made in Kentucky. It doesn't. It's predominantly made in Kentucky. But there are some specifics in terms of bourbon. By law, you cannot uh, call a a bourbon whiskey bourbon unless it meets certain requirements, the first of which is it must be at least 51% corn.
2: Correct. Corn has to be the majority grain in your mash bill or recipe. Uh, After that, you can play with about anything you want. I mean, the definition of whiskey is a product made from a fermented mash of grain. That's pretty wide open. So bourbon is very specific in the fact that corn has to be your majority grain. And as far as the geographic location, bourbon must be made in the United States. You know, a lot of people try to single it out to Kentucky because 95% of the world's bourbon is made here in Kentucky, but it does have to be made in the, in the United States.
1: The other thing, the other requirement is that it must be aged in new Oak American oak barrels,
2: correct. Yeah, it has to be a new now, barrel. You can't reuse the barrels one uh, one time. I mean, and that allows us to get the the you know job done in the time we do. And since we cannot add colors or flavors, a hundred percent of the color and probably seventy percent of the flavor comes from that new oak barrel that we age the bourbon in.
1: Fred, there's a lot of controversy over the name bourbon did bourbon originate from bourbon county kentucky was it the bourbon family of uh, louisiana what's your take
2: well i think you're you're partially right on both uh no here in kentucky bourbon county there is a a big tie back to france and if you look we have a town paris kentucky Uh, we have a town we call versailles but it's spelled just like versailles and in louisville Comes from uh, King Louis, and but really, bourbon how it kind of got its name was a lot of the state of Kentucky was Bourbon County, and they when people started getting the whiskey from Bourbon County, they started calling for that whiskey from Bourbon County. Hence, that's where uh, bourbon got its name, and that's but it all does kind of go back to that, uh, you know bourbon family and our ties here in the state of Kentucky to, uh, to the, to the France, France. So that's, you know, you are right on both those accounts that, you know, goes back to the bourbon family and bourbon County here in Kentucky.
1: Fred, no, the third master distiller of Jim Beam. And I should also say some of their they're uh, single barrel brands as well. Uh, certainly, Booker's and Basil Hayden's. One of my favorite. Love Basil. Love Book. Love them all, actually. Uh, but uh, Fred, when we, we, I mean, you can't go wrong with bourbon. When we look at cigars and we look at bourbon, both really experienced very uh, similarities in the marketplace. They were very popular going back in the '40s, and the '50s, even the '60s, and then they went on a downtrend, and all of a sudden. About 20 years ago we saw this resurgence this renaissance not only with cigars but with bourbon as well. What do you attribute that bourbon renaissance to?
2: I think a lot of that, you know, rekindling the fire under bourbon goes back to four of the guys I call the elder statesmen of the bourbon industry. When you look at uh, Jimmy Russell from Wild Turkey, uh, Parker Beam from Heaven Hill, Elmer T. Lee from Blanton's, and most certainly my father, Booker No, you know, in the 70s and early 80s, they started looking at creating premium bourbons, and they went out on the road and started educating people on what bourbon was all about. And I think folks wanted didn't really know about bourbon, didn't know what, you know, that was kind of your dad's drink or your grandfather's drink. But then, you know, they got out there and started showing people, hey, it's more than just a shot at the bar like the cowboys that bellied up to the bar in the Western movies. You know, you can make cocktails, you can enjoy it neat on the rocks in drinks, and it opened up people to experiment with bourbon. And I think that's what kind of got people looking at it. And then more and more education, the consumers were educated on bourbon, and they started being inquisitive. Because if you look back in history, a lot of times people were dead set on a certain beverage that they enjoyed, and that's what they drank. But as time has evolved, people are more inquisitive, and they try different things when they go out. And I think they discovered, hey, bourbon is not as bad as I think it is. You know, And there's something here. If it's presented right and it's not too strong, you can enjoy it. I always tell people, if you taste a bourbon and make a face, then it's too strong. Bring it down to a strength that's pleasing to your palate so you can enjoy it. And that was kind of what my dad and the other elder statesmen were teaching people about bourbon, and I think that's what rekindled the fire under the bourbon category.
1: Yeah, there's been a huge resurgence of all the brown spirits. When you look at uh, bourbon and you look at Scotch whiskey and Irish whiskey, it's just a very hot segment. And just like the Renaissance, the, the boom in cigars took the cigar manufacturers by surprise, same thing with the bourbon distillers. And both are similar in that you can't just say, okay, we need to up our production great let's increase our production by 50% and we can get it out to market in in a month it doesn't work that way because you have to no. put those in in barrels and it it takes you can't rush the hands of time it takes a minimum of you know 4 years sometimes longer so what's interesting to me is there are more barrels filled with bourbon aging in Kentucky than there are people in Kentucky which is an amazing fact
2: yeah it is pretty cool <laughs>
1: But it, it mean, takes governor, time. You can't just former rush governor it.
2: Governor Beshear, he always liked that statistic when he put it out there. there. There are more barrels of bourbon aging here in Kentucky than there are folks living here, which uh, it's a pretty strong industry here in our state.
1: It really is. And uh, what's interesting is there are 1.5 barrels for every person living in Kentucky. So I think there's <laughs> around 6 or 7 million barrels right now of bourbon that are, that are being aged. And you can't just... Fill it and say, "Okay, great. We're going to come to market. It's got. It just has to be right." And I think when you look at Jim Beam, consistency is the key because when you have Jim Beam, whether it is from today or from three years ago, it is a very consistent product. As are all the Jim Beam bourbon whiskeys.
2: Well, thank you. Yeah, that's something we we try to protect the legacy of our, our bourbon and to keep producing it the same way that it's been produced right here in Claremont since Prohibition was repealed. And, you know, we keep using the same yeast strain, the yeast that Jim Beam created right after Prohibition. We're still using it today. Uh, and so, you know, that's a lot of it. Just keep doing the same thing over and over and over again. That's what my father uh, instilled in me and my son is learning from me at this time. And that's why we, we try to keep it as close to the way we've been making it as we can.
1: Well, I've got in front of me before we get tasting in just a few minutes. I've got the Jim Beam original. I've got the Jim Beam. Now, this is interesting. I've got, now it's called the Jim Beam Black, but I still have a bottle. Actually, I've got two bottles of the Jim Beam Black Double Aged, which had an age statement, eight years. And I remember Correct. when they were you were changing, I said, I better pick up some of these because I love these. <laughs> but you've had added so many additionals. You've got the Devil's Cut now, the Jim Beam Rye, the Double Oak, the Bonded, uh, even some of the flavored whiskeys, the Signature Craft, which we'll get into, as well as the, the Booker's and the Basil Hayden's, also amongst my favorites. But give us a history of Jim Beam, uh, because obviously you are now the third in a line of master distillers. Your son now is the fourth, and maybe your grandson will be the fifth. But give us a history of Jim Beam bourbon.
2: Well, it actually goes back even further than that. It goes back to 1795 when Jacob Beam uh, made his first barrel of whiskey on Hardin Creek, which is from where we're located right now in Claremont. Uh, It's about 30 miles, as Dad would always say, as the crow flies. I guess that crow flew in a straight line. But that's, uh, you know, he started making whiskey in the early days of Kentucky when land was granted to folks that would grow corn. And they were getting trying to get westward movement from the original 13 colonies. And old Jacob, who came from Maryland, he, uh, he came down with his wife and they settled right here close by on Hardin Creek, and he started making whiskey. And then uh, his son, David Beam came along, moved the business up here to Bardstown to get closer to the new railroad that was just starting to blaze the trail through this new territory, what is now the Commonwealth of Kentucky, to be able to get you know, raw materials in and to ship out finished bourbon. So then uh, the business stayed there. David's son, David M., came into the business, carried it on, uh, his son James Beauregard, or Jim Beam, came along, the fourth generation, and he was running the business here in Bardstown when the dreaded Prohibition came about. And Jim Beam shut the business down, sold the property, sold the distillery, and got away from it because he did not want to go to jail. He knew there was going to be some illegal activity go on because he didn't. He knew that American. Public was not going to quit drinking just because the government in Washington, D.C. passed a law that says we can no longer possess, drink, or have beverage alcohol. And Jim Beam, during that prohibition era, tried his hand at citrus farming down in Florida, which his daughter said he failed at miserably. He also tried some coal mining in eastern Kentucky. That didn't pan out too well for him. And his third business venture was digging limestone rock where our distillery in Claremont is located today. And when Prohibition was repealed, he cranked the old Murphy Barber distillery up that was located close to where he was digging this limestone rock and put our family back into business. You know, he did that at the age of 70. And it always amazes me, heck, I'm 61 And if I can get the grass cut here at the house, I'm tickled to death. I couldn't imagine starting a distillery nine years from now, but I'm always grateful that my great-grandfather, Jim Beam, had that foresight to get our family back in the bourbon business. And then his son, T. Jeremiah, came along and ran the business, helped his dad get it started after Prohibition. He ran it. He had no children. So when Uncle Jerry needed to bring another family member into the business or desired to, He had to look to his sister's family. Hence, my father was the firstborn son. That's why the last name went from Beam to No, on actually the sixth generation of Beam distillers. And then Dad brought me into the business, and I've brought Freddie into the business. And if uh, little Booker down the road decides he wants to become a, a bourbon distiller, I'm sure the opportunity will be there for him if that's what he chooses to do. And that's pretty much our history from 1795 till today, and there's been a Beam family member making the whiskey and bourbon and all of our products ever since the very beginning of, of the company.
1: Fred the III, master distiller at Jim Beam Bourbon and distilling our guests as we celebrate National Bourbon Heritage Month here on the Cigar Dave Show. An incredible story, really in uh, uh, just persistence. I mean, it's 70, really, with the entrepreneurial spirit. And you actually have come out, Jim Beam has come out, with Jacob's Ghost White Whiskey to uh, celebrate, commemorate the founder and first distiller. And that is a white whiskey. So that is basically uh, really unaged. That doesn't go in the barrels. That's pretty much what uh, the first Jim Beam tasted like.
2: Well, we actually aged the Jacob's Ghost. And then polished out any color that it picked up, because we wanted to smooth it out a little bit. Uh, I'm
1: sure so it did go in Jacob,
2: barrels. Yeah, but we did put it in barrels, and uh, but we didn't. You know, we polished out the color that it picked up in the short time we aged it, so it still would be clear. We tried to make a white whiskey that was very palatable and could be used in a lot of cocktails, but we were commemorating yeah. Jacob's making the clear whiskey.
1: So that's not really like what we would consider like a white dog or a moonshine because it does go in barrels and it is aged, uh, but right. you just for a that shorter could have time.
2: Actually, if you want to really get technical, we could have called it bourbon. Now, you couldn't call it straight bourbon because it wasn't aged for two years, a, and it was actually in a new barrel. So, I mean, if we really technically we could have called that product a bourbon whiskey, but you could not have called it straight because it was not aged for two years. But it was Fred, aged what, in a new barrel for a period of time. So, I mean, that's all the law says on bourbon. So we met the aging requirement for bourbon, but you couldn't call it straight because it wasn't aged at least two years.
1: Interesting. And we see a, a really a movement now towards single-barrel uh, bourbons. And what is interesting mm-hmm. is Jim Beam was really the first to come out with a single-barrel bourbon going back to Knob Creek, uh, I think, what, about 25 years ago.
2: Well, we were really slower on the single barrel than a lot of others because my father was not a huge fan of single barrel bourbons due to the fact of the variation in flavor from barrel to barrel. And Dad, he always liked to mingle the barrels together for consistency. Like you said, how Jim Beam was always consistent year after year after year after year. That was something my father hung his hat on, making the bourbon the same, as close to the same as you can every time. But as I started traveling, we uh, we well, I started seeing that people like the slight inconsistencies of single barrel products. And that's where we decided to get into that single barrel market because people kept asking me, why don't you do a single barrel? Why don't you do a single barrel? Why don't you do a single barrel? When I'm traveling, if I hear something enough then I know there is interest for a product. And so that's where single barrel came from was from customers asking me why don't not we do a single barrel we weren't really the first I'll tell you the one who i think was probably the first was elmer t lee up at blanton's in uh frankfurt because uh, blanton was a, always a single barrel bourbon because at the time dad was releasing the small batch bourbons uh elmer was doing the blanton's which was a single barrel product product and dad liked it but he didn't like the idea of it being inconsistent every time.
1: Well, your dad may not have liked it, but certainly Knob Creek now is uh, the number one selling small batch bourbon in the country.
2: Yeah, Dad, his uh, you know single barrel wasn't his thing, but that was something that you know he didn't uh, he didn't appreciate. But you know he, he liked things different than I guess. That's why there's so many different bourbons on the shelf. Everybody doesn't like the same thing. But uh, we definitely got into it and. And it's also given us an opportunity to let customers come to our distillery and select a barrel and buy the entire barrel of bourbon.
1: And if I'm not mistaken, I th- also you you launched uh, others in your small batch collection. I'm familiar with Basil Hayden's because I love the Basil Hayden. It's got a very unique bottle and uh, the way that it's, it's encased uh, with a very unique uh, circular, almost looks like a uh, what you'd see around a barrel. Uh, but uh, that, you had Basil Hayden's and Knob Creek, and there were two others also that you added to the craft collection.
2: Yeah, Booker's, you know, Dad's namesake, and then Baker's is one that's, you know, it's been, been very successful too. You know, and within the family, you know, we've got our Knob Creek rye, a Knob Creek single barrel rye as well. And so it's, you know, our small batch family has grown significantly since Dad released the original four back, you know, in the early 90s.
1: And the Basil Hayden's, to me, for the price, uh, the aging on it, absolutely spectacular. I mean, just a very smooth, and if somebody wants a a, a bourbon whiskey that's not going to overpower them, that's going to be very smooth, that's going to be very gentle, to me, the Basil Hayden's, you can't go wrong with.
2: Oh, yeah, you're exactly right. That's one of our guardrails on Basil Hayden is approachable and easy to drink. I mean, I think people who are playing with bourbon, if, if you want a lighter bourbon that's you know, got a nice, clean finish, uh, Basil Hayden definitely fits that bill, and it's, it's done very, very well. People have discovered it and love it.
1: And real quickly, uh, Booker's, when you look at Booker's, it almost looks like you're, uh, it's a bottle of wine. It doesn't look like a bottle of bourbon.
2: Well, That's actually a, a stock wine bottle that my father did pick. And, you know, Booker's being bottled straight from the barrel, uncut, unfiltered, uh, is the reason that was Dad's baby. But his theory was that people can reduce it to the strength that they want to drink it. You know, every other product that we do, we bring it down to the bottling strength with demineralized water. Booker's comes straight from the barrel, right to the bottle, and so it's bourbon in its purest form.
1: Fantastic. Our guest, Frederick Booker the III, the master distiller of Jim Beam and their craft collection. And we come back, we'll get into tasting some of these great bourbon whiskeys from Jim Beam as we celebrate National Bourbon Heritage Month.
0: The General is always on Twitter, delivering breaking news, giving you the latest intel on cigars, and battling the enemies of pleasure. Chat with The General now at Cigar Dave Show.
1: The General and Global Alpha Male in Chief as we celebrate National Bourbon Heritage Month with Frederick Booker No the Master Distiller at Jim Beam Bourbon. And Fred, I have in front of me a variety of incredible whiskeys coming from your distillery in Claremont, Kentucky. First, let's talk about your flagship, if you will, the Jim Beam Original. Now, very quickly, I've noticed that you've taken age statements off all of the bourbons, and that's not uncommon. We're seeing that. Uh, tell us why that has been done.
2: A lot of it, when you state the age, every drop in the bottle has to be of at least that age. With uh, the Jim Beam White Label, for example, it's four years old, and we, we get everything to a four-year taste profile. So it's, you know, some of them might be a little older than four, some right on four. Especially with the, the older things where we take for the black, for example, we'll have some that's a little, little better than seven or eight years old, some that's a little younger, trying to hit that seven-year taste profile. And that's the thing is, it was tightening up our inventories are so tight that when you start putting the age statement, it makes it tough to keep up with the demand curve. It's off the charts right now. For a lot of these products, if if we stuck to age statements, a lot of products would disappear from the, the shelf. Gotcha, but you still not enough you still man,
1: and you still maintain the consistency. So let me uh, yep, before we I get ready to say cheers and uh, sample the Jim Beam Kentucky Straight Bourbon. You have something that you have uh, kind of made famous, and that's called the Kentucky Chew.
2: Well, my father actually did. It was Dad's tasting technique. You know, where he put the bourbon in his mouth, rolled it around, and chewed on it. And the reason he did that was, you know, different parts of your mouth pick up different flavors. And so he rolled the bourbon all around and chewed on it as the whole time pulling a little air into his mouth. And that was his way of tasting, trying to assess the flavors. And then when he swallowed it, he would draw a little air in to assess the finish. And a whiskey writer picked up on Dad's tasting technique and said, what do you call that? And Dad, out of the blue, always had an answer. I call that the Kentucky Chew, and it kind of stuck on Dad. And after, uh, you know, he passed away and I started traveling, people kept saying who would seen Dad, Are you going to do the Kentucky Chew. So I would uh, put it in my mouth and do the same thing for, uh, for people, and it still kind of stuck with us.
1: <laughs> well, that's what I'm going to do, Fred, right now. I'll say cheers, and this is a taste of the Jim Beam Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey. Mm, Very smooth. Mm -hmm. Definitely gets some of the uh, oakiness, but just not a lot of uh, afterbite. It's pretty smooth, and this is the number one selling bourbon in the world, I believe.
2: Absolutely. I think the thing that makes the Jim Beam White Label so uh, good and the number one bourbon in the world is the mixability of it. As you just drank it neat, but if you want to do it with a plus one, uh, say a ginger ale or a Coke or some other, You know, plus one, our soda, Uh, people can mix it or you can drink it neat. You know, so it's a very versatile bourbon that folks who are just starting to play with bourbon have found that maybe that's where they get started. They see it in a bar, they try it, and it kind of makes their uh, inquisitive minds think of bourbon. And after they get used to the, the flavor, then they start looking at other bourbons on the shelf.
1: Let's talk, uh, now I'm going to sample the Jim Beam Black Extra Age Bourbon, and this one, the highest awarded accolade in the bourbon category at the 2016 International Wine and Spirits Competition. So as I Mm -hmm. swirl it around on the nose, definitely getting some citrus notes. Right. Hmm,
2: That one is aged, the one that you have in your hand there. We call it double aged because it's aged twice as long as our Jim Beam White Label. Uh, the white label is four years, twice as long as it has to be aged to be a straight. But this one's aged twice as long as that. So it was, you know, every drop in that bottle was eight years old. And, you hmm. know, more of the barrel comes into play, much more yep. barrel. And you got a little more strength. I think a little more strength, a the... little bit
1: more sizzle, I'll I'll say, on the palate. I just did the Kentucky mm-hmm. Chew, I'm getting a little sizzle mm-hmm. on the tongue. All a right. little bit of warmth, not a ton of warmth, but just enough Going back right. down the throat. Very, very pleasant.
2: Very, very good bourbon. Very Again, very versatile. Folks who want to drink it on the rocks or neat can do that, or you can mix it in a cocktail. All
1: right, now we're going to do something a little different. We're going to go to your Jim Beam Pre-Prohibition Rye. Now, as we know, rye, definitely a lot of spiciness, a lot of pepperiness. So I'm going to say cheers. And I'm going to do the Kentucky Chew as I sample this. And tell me what uh, makes this Jim Beam rye pre-prohibition so unique.
2: Well, our, our Jim Beam rye is not a 100% rye whiskey. You know, by law, uh, rye whiskey has to be at least 51% rye. Dad and the Beam family always enjoy still putting some corn in our rye whiskey to give it a little sweetness. You know, and that's why we're not, uh, and we made a lot of rye, but we do add a little corn, and I think it helps balance our rye uh, whiskey out. It gives a little sweetness. We also got the malted barley that we use for our conversion of starches to sugar before fermentation. And that's kind of what makes, I think, ours a little different than others, because if you don't you know, use the malt, then you have to add enzymes and other things to get the conversion. But we We're making this as an old-style rye whiskey and we've been making it this way for many, many years. since before I was probably ever born. I'm 61, and uh, Rye's been around. It's been through a couple of uh, upgrades. I mean, we went from a yellow label to a green label, from 80 proof to, to 90 proof, but it's still basically the same whiskey, just a little higher proof and a little different label. All
1: right, Fred, now I'm going to move into your Jim Beam signature craft. I've got your quarter cask, and this is aged... Eight years. Tell me about your signature craft real quick as I get ready to sample it.
2: Well, the signature craft was an experiment we did several years ago where we tried to think outside of the barrel, and we did some different mash bills, uh, did that quarter cask finish where we took the bourbon out of the 200-liter barrels and put it into some 50-liter barrels to give a little more wood influence on the finish. And And our different mash bills, we did a red winter wheat, we did triticale, we did an extremely high rye, we did a rolled oats, and six-row barley, and you know, and a brown rice. That was the sixth. And since then, we've actually revisited the brown rice mash bill. So you'll see that one uh, coming out after it ages out a little more. But that was an well, experiment yep. that we did just to kind of think, as we said, outside of the barrel about 15, 20 years ago.
1: Well, the experiment worked, and I'm getting a lot of vanilla and definitely a lot of oakiness on this with a lot of warmth coming back down on the palate. And lastly, and we could go on, we could taste every single one, but let me go over to your um, small batch series. Let's talk about that Basil Hayden's because that, to me, is so approachable as I pour it here. Mm -hmm. It's just a very smooth, very balanced, just a very, very tame uh, in personality uh, whiskey.
2: Yeah, but Basil Hayden, what we do on it is we keep the corn still above 51%, but we double the amount of rye that we put into the mash bill. We age it out and bottle it at 80 proof, so it still is very approachable, and put it in that unique package you talked about with the belly band and the label that looks like a set of overalls. And basil has done very, very well and is, a, is growing at an astronomical rate. I mean, people are discovering it and loving it. And basil is a is a great one. If you want a soft, easy to drink bourbon, Basil Hayden definitely fits the bill.
1: Yep, very very pleasant. And and what's unique about this? You said it's got double the rye content, yet I'm not getting any of that peppery spiciness. Uh, right. uh, when I taste this.
2: Well, we don't. It's not like a rye whiskey because you're still over 51 percent corn. Right. You're just getting a little bit of the rye uh, in the mash bill. You know, so it's it's still basically a bourbon but we got just a little bit of rye to give it a slight little bit of bite, but nothing like a rye whiskey.
1: And you've added so many new ones, uh, and we'll just briefly talk about it, but your Jim Beam Devil's Cut has been very popular. You've got certainly a lot of the flavored whiskeys now, the Red Stag and the vanilla, uh, and, and that's been very popular. As a whiskey or bourbon purist, to me, I just don't like that sweetness, but it's become very popular. But that Devil's Cut, has really become a very very heavily popular bourbon.
2: Yeah, Devil's Cut, we sweat some more of the bourbon that's still trapped in the wood out by putting water in the used barrels. And that gives it a little more of the tannins and a little more of the wood influence from the oak barrels that we age the bourbon in. Now, Devil's Cut's been a fun one to play with and to do, and it has become uh, pretty successful.
1: Now I'd ask you what your favorite Jim Beam is, but I know you're going to tell me the answer. They're all your children; you love them all, but there's got to be one that you gravitate to now and then.
2: Uh, Booker's is the one that I gravitate towards because Dad created it, you know, and it bears his name and my name. But and I do select the barrels for Booker's uh, since Dad passed away. But you know, it's it's a little higher strength, so it just depends on what I'm doing. If I'm home, that's why I said I'll probably enjoy a Booker's tonight after we go visit my grandson in the hospital, and I get back home and I can sit back on the patio and relax, uh, I think that's be what will happen. We'll have, a, we'll have a Booker's 20th anniversary in honor of the, the new little Booker No who just uh, made his debut into the world last night.
1: Well, Fred, we'll send you up some celebratory cigars. I think we'll get some uh, – in fact, I'm going to see the guys over at uh, Davidoff right here in the Cigar City of Tampa. So we'll get you some celebratory cigars. And next time up up in Kentucky, I will absolutely uh, give you a shout and would love to visit you, and we'll do a tasting. And, uh, Fred, we really appreciate it. Frederick Booker Noe III, master distiller legend in the bourbon whiskey area. And congratulations on Frederick Booker Noe V, who was born yesterday. (laughs)
2: Thank you. Thank you, Dave. You guys have a great weekend.
1: You too. Fred, as always, great to speak with you. And uh, I'll tell you what, I could sit here and taste every single Jim Beam in the line, and maybe we will over the next uh, couple of weeks as we celebrate National Bourbon Heritage Month front and center on The Cigar Dave Show. Gurkha has just launched three new cigars at the Cigar Dave Alpha Pleasure Fest on the water in Buffalo. The Gurkha Chateau Privé, the Gurkha Marquesa, and Gurkha Ghost Gold. All three unique flavor profiles. The Gurkha Chateau Preve, more traditional mild and creamy cigar, typically found in many of the high-end Dominican cigars. Exquisite flavor, very velvety on the palate, featuring an Ecuadorian De Florada wrapper. The Gurkha Marquesa, very Cubanesque all the way around from flavor and packaging. With an earthy Sumatra wrapper, Gurkha Marquesa is a bold, well-balanced, medium-bodied, and spicy cigar. The Gurkha Ghost Gold, a little different than the regular Gurkha Ghost, more flavor, a little bit bolder, featuring an Ecuadorian Habano wrapper. Instead of a sweet flavor on the Gurkha Ghost, it's a more nutty and earthy profile. The Gurkha Chateau Prevay, the Gurkha Marquesa, and Gurkha Ghost Gold, three new cigars just launched by Gurkha. If you are a connoisseur of great cigars, the club you have to join is the Cigar Dave Officers Club because every month you'll get three great cigars shipped directly to you in an Officers Club pouch. Cigars that are mild, that are medium, that are full, maduro, natural. Cigars that have sweet taste profiles, that have rich, spicy profiles. Varied cigars. You will enjoy a cornucopia of cigar flavors and taste. We had great cigars that came your way as a member of the Officers Club in 2017 from Rocky Patel, from Casada, from Camacho, from Avo, and we've got great cigars coming your way in 2018 from Alec Bradley, from Gurkha, from Placencia, from CAO, from Quesada... The list goes on and on. Join the Cigar Dave Officers Club. Get three great cigars every month directly to you. $22.95 per month. Monthly membership you can cancel whenever you want. Go to CigarDave.com, click on Officers Club, and join right now.
0: With an unlimited and secure supply of pleasure sticks available for the General to enjoy, it's time for National
1: Cigar Litation Maneuvers. The General from Command Center Alpha back in the Cigar City of Tampa. And I've just been surrounded by Pendragon's Royal Sultan and Pendragon's Royal Baron, my two German Shepherds. As soon as they got whiffed that I am going to be conducting litation maneuvers and libation maneuvers, They just sat next to me on each side. They love the aroma of fine cigars, but they do not get a lick of my libation. Well, maybe I will put, you know what, maybe one day I'll give them just one lick so they can enjoy some fine bourbon as we celebrate National Bourbon Heritage Month. And I have just pulled out a cigar that will go very nicely with my libation of choice as we had Frederick Booker No, the third, Fred No, master distiller at Jim Beam for the first portion of this edition of the Cigar Dave Show. will continue with one of their great libations. But I've just pulled out a brand new cigar that was launched at the Cigar Retailers Convention, mid July, Las Vegas, Nevada, nothing like 110 degrees in the middle of the summer in Vegas. But I've just pulled out the new La Gloria Cubana Esteli. I was extremely impressed by this new addition to the La Gloria Cubana portfolio. The cigar is incredibly smooth. It's rich. Just beautiful construction. Feels nice in the hand. Comes in three different sizes. Uses a Jalapa Nicaraguan wrapper. Uses a Nicaraguan Hamastron binder, uh, as well as fillers from Hamastron and Honduras. And actually, I should say the binder is from the Hamistron Valley in Honduras. I spoke too soon. So it's got a Nicaraguan jalapa wrapper, Hamastron Honduran binder, and it's got fillers from Nicaragua and Honduras. Three different sizes, a Robusto, a Toro, and a Gigante. The Gigante, six and a quarter inches in length with a 60 ring gauge. That is 60, 64ths of an inch in diameter. So that's a big ring gauge size cigar. But I pulled out the Toro Five and a half inches in length, 54 ring gauge or 54 64ths of an inch in diameter. Smoked several of these cigars at the General Cigar Booth in, I should say, not really a booth, it's huge. It was probably about 2,500 square feet, 3,000 square feet, very big area on the convention center floor of the Las Vegas Convention Center. And every brand had their own little uh, area. So, they had umpteen cigars to sample, and I pulled it and I started talking to Steve Abbott, the brand manager for La Gloria Cubana, and he started telling me about the cigar. And He goes, General, here, just light one. So, I started, took the Robusto, cut the end, started to light, was blown away. The flavor was incredibly smooth, just the construction. But what really blew me away was the price point on these cigars. The Robusto was $4.99. The Toro 599 and the Gigante 690. I couldn't believe it. They're made down in General Cigar's factory in Republica Dominicana, or the Dominican Republic. But I could not believe it. Uh, and actually, I spoke too soon on that. Oh, I, I forgot that Steve had told me that every cigar that La Gloria Cubana rolls is made in the Dominican, with the exception of this new Esteli, which is rolled at their Esteli factory. So that's why they call it Esteli. But again, just blew me away. The cigars began shipping a couple of weeks ago. Price point, unbelievable value. So I will smoke the La Gloria Cubana Esteli as we kick off National Bourbon Heritage Month tasting maneuvers.
0: Cigar altering and highly sharpened
1: leaf exposing device. In my hot right hand, I've got myself sharpening double-edged stainless steel guillotine ready to go.
0: Maximum BTU flame-throwing and heat-producing apparatus.
1: Well, I've just unleashed the fire in this Alec Bradley tabletop burner lighter. It looks like a Bunsen burner. Very unique lighter. Huge, huge tank. And I can... You can listen. You can hear me very... The fuel. But it just looks like a Bunsen burner. You get a nice, even flame. And it's just a great way... If you've got a desk, if you've got a cigar lounge at your house or even outside, just a great way to light your cigar. And that's what I will use today on my La Gloria Cubana Esteli. Cigar.
0: cigar pre-lightation checklist complete. No faults detected. Area clear of all enemies of pleasure. Approval to go throttle up in three, two, one.
1: Perfect cut off my La Gloria Cubana Esteli, and I will gently toast the foot of this cigar, taking my time. And I will tell you that in the next hour, we will be joined by... Noted football analyst and scout, Chris Landry of uh, Football. Sergeant Steve, it's LandryFootball.com, correct? That is correct. I always want to say Landry Sports. I don't know why. But LandryFootball.com, one of the preeminent analysts and uh, draft gurus in the country as we talk about the opening of the National Football League two nights ago. Thursday night, kind of, you know, I fell asleep after the first half. It was a really boring game the first half. Ended up falling asleep, and uh, the Eagles won 18-12 over the Falcons. But uh, i got to tell you, the college games uh, the first weekend were far more exciting than the first NFL game last night. Let me puff and rotate on my La Gloria Cubana Esteli here. Mmm. Great draw. Oh, yeah. Mmm. Wow. Again, five ninety nine for this cigar. It's incredible. Mmm. Great taste. Mmm. I'll tell you what. Getting a little sweetness, a little bit of uh, nut, nutty uh, taste on the palate here. On a medium-bodied side, mm, very, very nice. Love this taste profile. Not overly powerful, but incredibly smooth. Just, I tell you what, whether this cigar was $5.99 or $25.99, it's a fabulous cigar. You can't go wrong. Highly recommend the new La Gloria Cubana Esteli. And I need a special bourbon to pair with it as we celebrate National Bourbon Heritage Month and especially celebrating our guest in the first portion of this edition of the Cigar Dave Show, Fred Noe III, Master Distiller at Jim Beam. So without any further delay.
0: Scotch, bourbon, and beer. Commence thirst-quenching libationary
1: maneuvers. We spoke with Fred about Knob Creek. A Kentucky straight bourbon whiskey. That was the first of the four Jim Beam small-batch bourbon brands that were released 25 years ago. They wanted to go for a higher-end spirit market. In addition to Knob Creek, they launched Booker's, Basil Hayden's, which I absolutely love, and Baker's. But the Knob Creek was the very first. It is bottled at 100 proof, so it is higher proof than the regular Jim Beam. 100 proof, meaning 50% alcohol by volume. Used to be aged for nine years. They no longer carry an age statement. We're seeing that more and more with bourbons. There was a shortage of bourbons. So consequently, they're taking the age statement off the bottle, but still maintaining the consistency. Very unique rectangular bottle. It's got a uh, corked-on wax-sealed top. I have just pulled that off. And I will pour some of this Knob Creek. I'm going to pour it in my little whiskey snifter here. And it comes not only in the original now 100, the Knob Creek 100 proof, but it also comes in a rye, which is very, very nice. There's straight rye. It's got a smoked maple, the single barrel. But let me say cheers here. Take a sip of my Knob Creek. Mm. Wow. Definite pre-prohibition style bourbon. A lot of flavor. A lot of... you taste the char from the wood, the barrel. A lot of flavor on this. And it goes very nicely with my La Gloria Cubana Esteli. Outstanding. Great hour with Frederick Booker the III, master distiller of Jim Beam Distillery and Jim Beam Bourbons. Next hour, we'll be joined by Chris Landry. And I will break out master thespian, sodavius Generalis Cory Booker. Senator from New Jersey gave me the opportunity. Hour two of Cigar Dave is next.
0: This is AMEN, the Alpha Male Entertainment Network. Broadcasting from Humidor 1A in the cigar city of Tampa, Florida, U-S-A. Welcome to the Cigar Dave Show weekly excursion into the world of cigars, spirits, and diversions. The cigar and pleasure-friendly hotlines are open. 877-DAVE-007. Now, fire up a cigar and pour yourself a cocktail. It's time for the General Cigar Dave.
1: We continue celebrating Alpha Male Good Life Pleasure Maneuvers. First hour, we celebrated Kentucky Bourbon Heritage Month with Frederick Booker the III, master distiller and incredible expert in the world of bourbon whiskey. Great knowledge that he imparted to us. And I'm staring at these five bottles from Jim Beam and the Basil Haydens, the Jim Beam Signature Craft the Knob Creek that I enjoyed for the litation and libation ceremony, and I'm still salivating, and there's no doubt I'll have to take another few swigs here in this hour. But we will be talking football later in this hour with Chris Landry, noted football expert of LandryFootball.com, spent time with Bill Belichick in the Cleveland Browns and uh, Nick Saban at LSU. We'll talk NFL First game uh, occurred two nights ago. Not overly exciting, but football is back. Life is good. Welcome back. Hour number two. As always, I extend to you my long ash greetings and salutations, a long ash, snappy salute. Semper Delictatio. Always pleasure. Long live the Alpha. Make America great again. Make masculinity great again. As always, don't forget to follow me on social media. Just go to CigarDave.com, upper right-hand corner. You will see the icons for all the social media platforms. We have not been banned, uh, unlike other broadcasters that got permanently lifetime banned a couple of days ago. But uh, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, just go ahead and click it, and you can follow it. Now, very quickly here, before I get into some very pressing show material, and we may have to bring out uh, Master Thespian Sir Davis. Generalis. actually not May we will but those of you that are members of the Cigar Dave Officers Club the August 2018 selection the Fonseca Classic just a wonderful very smooth cigar launched in 1974 by master cigar blender legend in the cigar industry Manuel Casada that has uh, just stood the test of time over the last 44 years the Fonseca Classic was mailed and shipped earlier this week what has happened Between the civil unrest in Nicaragua the last three, four months, shipments getting out of the Nicaraguan factories late, and then just getting, uh, when they do get out, they just overwhelm customs down in Miami, and that consequently causes a backup, even with cigars coming from Honduras and the Dominican Republic, and that's exactly what happened with this Fonseca Classic. But those of you that are members of the Officers Club, you will be receiving the Fonseca Classic. should start to get them today into next week, depending on where you live geographically. And our September selection, we will make an announcement next week. We think we know what it's going to be, but uh, it just depends on what is going on in Nicaragua. So some crazy times in Nicaragua that is having a rippling effect, but... Trust me, when you get these Fonseca Classics, you will love these cigars. A nice mild to medium-bodied cigar, loads of creaminess, very, very smooth. Connecticut Shade, USA wrapper, Dominican binder and filler. You'll love these Fonseca Cigars. And I'll tell you what, the Fonseca Classics would go great with the Basil Hayden's Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey, this uh, small-batch bourbon whiskey that I sampled in the first hour that we talked to Booker No about, just incredibly smooth Perfect combination, the Fonseca Classic and the Basil Haydens. All right, earlier this week, a couple of days ago, you saw on Wednesday New Jersey Senator Cory Booker. Now, we have featured him in the past on the show. He tends to get a little bit on the melodramatic side. And he was uh, uh, speaking with uh, the future Supreme Court Justice uh, Kavanaugh. And, of course, he is running for president. There's no question about it. We saw a number of Democratic candidates. They haven't announced yet, but they will, just a matter of time. We have seen them do some grandstanding. You can already see their, their campaign TV ads already being constructed with some of the sound bites. Well, Cory Booker threatened in a very melodramatic form to defy Senate rules, release confidential documents about Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh, And uh, he went on to talk about this Spartacus moment. So let us play soundbite number one, Sergeant Steve, uh, New Jersey Senator Cory Booker.
4: We have a process here for a person, the highest office in the land, for a lifetime appointment. We're rushing through this before me and my colleagues can even read and digest the information.
1: Oh, the drama. Allow me to break out Master Thespian Sedavius Generalis. We here have an unprecedented time. This is the highest judgeship in the land. We simply cannot be cavalier about this. We must release documents. We must get all the available information, for our nation depends on it. Let's play that one more time, Sergeant
4: Steve. We have a process here. For a person, the highest office in the land, for a lifetime appointment, we're rushing through this before me and my colleagues can even read and digest the information. Oh, I must digest that information.
1: I must digest it like a large steak meal from one of the fine steakhouses such as Morton's or Fleming's or Del Frisco's or the Palm, like I have gorged myself on a four-pound ribeye steak. I need time to digest, and if that does not work... I must take some tums or Rolades to allow the digestive juices to digest in my belly. Oh, please, the drama that this guy exudes, it's over the top. And again, you can already see that his 2020 Democratic primary campaign television commercial is going to use this melodramatic uh, 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 speech that he made. And he goes on to talk about his... Spartacus moment. This is about the closest I'll probably ever have in my life to an
5: I am Spartacus moment.
1: This is the closest I shall have to a Spartacus moment. Allow me to take that Spartacus book or the movie, the video, and hold it and place it near to my bosom to allow me to fully engrave myself into this incredible, melodramatic, play that I am creating here in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Now, when he talks about Spartacus... First of all, let's go ahead and play the soundbite from the movie Spartacus. I'm Spartacus! I'm Spartacus! I'm Spartacus! I'm
0: Spartacus! I'm Spartacus! I'm Spartacus! I'm Spartacus! I'm Spartacus! Spartacus.
3: I'm Spartacus!
1: I'm Spartacus. Spartacus! Now, if you have never seen the movie Spartacus, starring... Kirk Douglas. I think I'm trying to remember if this movie came out in the 50s or the 60s. It follows a a uh, Thracian man named Spartacus who is a slave of the Roman Empire in the first century B.C. But always defies them. He leads other slaves in revolt that initially was successful. But Spartacus's fighters are then surrounded by the Romans. Most of them are slaughtered outside of Rome. And the Romans start to question the survivors. They want to know who their leader is so they can make an example of him. And that's when all the survivors stand up and declare, Sergeant Steve, hit that soundbite one more time. I'm Spartacus.
0: I'm Spartacus. I'm Spartacus. I'm Spartacus. I'm Spartacus. I'm Spartacus. I'm Spartacus.
1: And what ends up happening... The Romans decide to whack everybody. So that was the Spartacus moment. Again, total melodrama, just overly melodramatic, but that's Cory Booker. It just has to go on and on and on. Now, what I want to do is next week, Burt Reynolds passed away at the age of 82, and uh, he was just a huge box office attraction. If you grew up in the 70s, even 80s, listen, every person I know, every male wanted to be Burt Reynolds. Why? He was banging Lonnie Anderson. He was married to Lonnie Anderson. So next week I'm going to spend a little bit more time talking about Burt Reynolds, his incredible career. And I got a great story from Gene Deckerhoff, the play-by-play voice of the Florida State Seminoles where where, uh, Burt Reynolds attended, talking about he and Lonnie Anderson. Great story that I will share with you. But we'll be talking football. The National Football League has started. We'll be joined by Chris Landry, talking NFL preview right around the corner. The General is
0: always on Twitter. Delivering breaking news. Giving you the latest intel on cigars. And battling the enemies of pleasure. Chat with The General now at Cigar Dave Show.
1: You are listening live to the Fox NFL theme. That can mean only one thing. It is time for our Cigar Dave National Football League preview. Football is back. College is back. NFL started two nights ago, although it was kind of a bad impression of an NFL regular season game as Atlanta lost to the Eagles 18-12. Truth be told, it put me to sleep after the first half. It was a yawner. They think I think they, they thought they were back in preseason. But joining us, a very special guest, noted football analyst and uh, expert and incredible uh, draft analyst. We've got Chris Landry of LandryFootball.com. Chris, I've been a big fan. I know that uh, you appear with my good friend Steve Dumig. Every time you're on, I make sure I listen because nobody breaks down games and players better than you, so it's a real pleasure and honor to have you on with us.
6: Well, I appreciate that. It's a, it's an honor to be on with you, and uh, always great talking football, and uh, it's exciting uh, the start of the season. I know you mentioned that the game wasn't real exciting uh, last night, and we may have some of that sluggish performances this week, but football's back, so I think we can all rejoice on that.
1: You know, before we get into uh, your background, it always amazes me that that college never needs any preseason games. They basically start the season, and we got great games last weekend, and yet the National Football League, they have four preseason games, and we got kind of a dud yesterday. It's really time for the NFL to just dump the preseason and go with 18 regular season games.
6: Well, you know, there's a lot of debate with that. Jerry Jones has come out and said the same thing. Of course, the, the motive behind that for owners is that they want to make two of the games uh, add two more to the regular season because they don't want to give folks um, a break on the tickets. It, it is really a shame that they charge full price for your season ticket package for the preseason games, which is really unfair. You know, as a football guy, the, the preseason games are important to develop a roster, but the quality of the games are not very, very good. And with the CBA that was was signed several years ago, you have less contact and pads. And that leads to, quite frankly, being less prepared for the start of the season. And I always tell everyone it takes a good four to five weeks to really get a feel for some of these teams because the, the quality is not that good. Now, in college, um, they don't have a preseason game, although – because we have a few good games, but most people play that, I call it the rent-a-win type of game, where sometimes they play sluggish, but they still can win by 30 points. So, yeah, you know, as long as things are equal, I guess it's fair and competitive. But as a football guy, I'd I'd like to see them do a little bit more to improve the preparation level so that the quality is a little bit better starting up. The tackling in particular is atrocious, uh, although – in the Monday night game, uh, excuse me, the Thursday night opener, we had some good tackling and not much offense.
1: You know, you talk about rent a win. Penn State almost rented a
6: loss from Appalachian State. <laughs> yeah, they did. Appalachian State. You know, people uh, are not going to want to uh, uh, sign up for uh, for to play those guys. And it was 11 years to the anniversary um, uh, that they beat Michigan. And I'm sitting there watching them playing Penn State. And this is a, a brand-new, young, first-time starting quarterback at Appalachian State. They, they Tim Satterfield does a really good job. They've got a lot of good athletes, and they play with a chip on their shoulder, and the program has gotten better and better. No, that, it, it is never smart to play a team like that because if you win, you don't get any credit for it, and if you lose, you get uh, vilified for it, and if you win in a close game, they say, what the heck happened?
1: Chris Landry, our guest uh, for our NFL preview here on the Cigar Dave Show. Chris, let's talk about your background. Fascinating. You really spent a lifetime in football. Been a coach, been a scout, administrator, both the college football, NFL levels. You're back in Baton Rouge uh, where you analyze all sorts of games. But tell us your background uh, because it really is fascinating.
6: Well, you know, I've been blessed to be around the game of football my entire life. I've never really felt like I've had a a real job in that sense. Um, You know, I started off – you know as I was a walk on football player at LSU and I can still remember to this day and uh, very limited had a couple of small college scholarship offers and a walk on at LSU grew up in South Louisiana going to LSU games Bill Orangeberger coach at LSU at the time and I'm there and I spent an entire fall and an entire spring and coach Orangeberger who um, people may remember was a, really a defensive savant uh was the coordinator for Don Shula and the Dolphins and the inventor of the 3-4 defense called me in and, and, uh, and basically said, you know, you're really not much of a player. You know, he says, you ever thought about coaching? And, of course, I hadn't. And he said, you know, you'd be, a, a, you know, a lot better help to us if, if maybe you became a student assistant coach. And, uh, of course, at the time I was devastated because I, I was dumb because there I was as a walk-on player getting my head beaten in by guys that were a lot better. And then I went to being a student assistant coach where you had the scholarship paid for and, um, you know, books and meals paid for. And that, that really started it for me. I learned a lot of football from him and then moved on, became a full-time assistant and then got an opportunity to get in the NFL to work for uh, Bill Belichick. And there was a, an assistant uh, among the assistants on that staff at that time was a guy named Nick Saban. So I spent time, and I still think about it to this day, sitting there at a table looking to my right and Bill Belichick and across the table and seeing Nick, to my right to, to see Nick Saban. And nothing to do with me, but I will probably will remember that for being maybe being on the staff and being able to see perhaps the two greatest coaches uh, in the history of pro football and the NFL respectively. Uh, and that really did it for me. And then I, I moved on. For, from Cleveland to go to run the scouting combine for, for a while and then on to Houston uh, to run the Oilers scouting department. And then when we moved to Tennessee, uh, moved uh, uh, with the team there, and then I moved back in the early 2000s when my dad got sick and um, and it just back home to Louisiana and did consulting work for teams. And have continued to do that and uh, started uh, a website um, with a good friend of yours um, that uh, you well know, Steve uh, Versnick and I, uh, he helped me um, get this started. And, and I tried to put together some things that I thought might be unique to fans to give them a perspective from uh, a coach and a scout and an administrator about the, the pro and college game, which uh, I so love. So you still
1: consult with NFL teams? Uh, I do. I do. I do
6: some work for some teams and some college programs. Uh, it involves you know, uh, draft consulting work, but it's also um, what we call advanced scouting, some evaluating of personnel as well as schematics. Do a lot of it during the off season, during the summertime, uh, where you really help the programs kind of break down what other people are doing, how they're doing it. And the real advantage is with technology the way it is, you you know you don't have to get out there in person as much. Uh, and then a coaching search work is a big part of what I do. That heats up a lot, uh, obviously, as the latter part of the college season takes place. You see a lot of coaching changes and evaluating coaches. Because one of the things I did for my alma mater, LSU, is I did, uh, having worked so closely with them, recommended that uh, they hire Nick Saban at LSU. And uh, they listened to me and thought so much of me that they went out and hired Jerry Donato, uh, and and uh, that had some success, <laughs> but but it ended up pretty poorly. And it wasn't until Mark Emmert, who's now the head of the NCAA, who's then the chancellor right. of LSU, decided, uh, you know, um, I, you know, at that point they had some interest and uh, some had remembered that and did a little bit more homework. Uh, Nick had at that point gone to Michigan State and had success there, and then. Um, but then at that point, Nick Saban wasn't interested in, in going. So I had to spend time convincing him that LSU was a much better job than the results had shown and explaining to him why I thought, you know, so many coaches had failed there and whatnot. And then uh, ended up where it, um, he got the job. And I can remember to this day, he was uh, named the, the, the head coach at LSU, the highest paid coach in the country at $1.2 million a year in, in the, like 2000. And uh, today, that's, uh, that's chicken feed. almost uh, You almost make that uh, on, a, on, a, on a weekly basis. But um, so that and uh, Bob Stoops, a few guys, uh, Kirk Ferrens who's had a lot of success at Iowa. Um, so it's helped me get into some of the coaching search realm um, with, you know, with background of knowing these guys. And, and I think it's important, like in any industry, to know who really does what. And uh, so – Uh, That's something that I do, and it's something that we try to bring to light on the website uh, for people's enjoyment.
1: All right, Chris, when we come back, we'll get into looking at this year's NFL season.
6: The
0: General is now on
1: Instagram.
0: Follow him for pictures of the latest cigars, libations, and what he's enjoying during the show. (laughs) That could be interesting, and we'll have to block out some faces. Go to Instagram and search Cigar Cigar Day. Day.
1: Gurkha has just launched three new cigars at the Cigar Dave Alpha Pleasure Fest on the water in Buffalo. The Gurkha Chateau Privé, the Gurkha Marquesa, and Gurkha Ghost Gold. All three unique flavor profiles. The Gurkha Chateau Privé, more traditional mild and creamy cigar, typically found in many of the high-end Dominican cigars. Exquisite flavor, very velvety on the palate, featuring an Ecuadorian Deflorado wrapper. The Gurkha Marquesa, very Cubanesque all the way around from flavor to and packaging. With an earthy Sumatra wrapper, Gurkha Marquesa is a bold, well-balanced, medium-bodied and spicy cigar. The Gurkha Ghost Gold, a little different than the regular Gurkha Ghost, more flavor, a little bit bolder, featuring an Ecuadorian Habano wrapper. Instead of a sweet flavor on the Gurkha Ghost, it's a more nutty and earthy profile. The Gurkha Chateau Prevay, the Gurkha Marquesa and Gurkha Ghost Gold, three new cigars just launched by Gurkha. Autumn in America, that means football. It means grilled meats. It means cigars. It means spirits. It means my favorite time of the year. And to preview this NFL season, we are rejoined by Chris Landry, draft and scout expert extraordinaire, and uh, the uh, man behind LandryFootball.com, joining us from his uh, headquarters in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Chris, I've got a picture of you that I found. Uh, You're in front of about 10 monitors with about uh, 14 different uh, DVR remote controls in your hand. So how many games do you watch at any one given time, or do you just uh, watch them on tape delay and then analyze them afterward?
6: Well, both. Uh, what I do is I used to have 10, and then I figured out that the four at the top, I just could not follow it. So I, I settled in on six is which i have now so um whether it's saturday or sunday i've got six games going on at once and i can tape or dvr is the term that that particular game on that tv as well as two others so at any point in time there are 18 games being taped so that i can go back and look at it the scouting work is done off the coaching tape that i get from teams and um but I always like to go back and get some things from the televised version because you can find out some things, um, injuries and whatnot, some of the flow that I like to chart and make note, w- notes while watching games to you know, help me before I go in and delve into the tape. So uh, it, is, it is pretty hectic, uh, but a lot of fun to monitor as many as six games at one time.
1: The most important position by far in football is the quarterback, why is it that it's so difficult for college quarterbacks who have tremendous success at the college level to replicate that success on the NFL pro level?
6: Well, it's such a different game, Dave. It's, um, the college game, um, the, the players are really good, but at the pro level, they're the best of the best. They're the biggest, they're the strongest, they're the fastest, they're the most skilled in terms of understanding and positioning themselves. So, uh, the, the degree of difficulty um, is that much greater in terms of being able to complete passes uh, and being able to find open receivers. For example, in college, guys, what's open in college uh, is, is a lot of spacing to be able to throw the football. Uh, in, in the pro game, when guys get open, it is such a narrow window that in most cases in college, they wouldn't allow their kids to throw the football in that spot because it's too close. But you have to do it in the NFL because that's as wide open as you're going to get in the NFL. I, I would explain it this way. It's kind of like making a layup versus trying to hit a three-point. I mean, um, you can do it, but it's a degree of difficulty is, is greater. Or, you know, maybe, you know, a hole in the three-foot putt or a 30-foot putt. It's that difficult, that much more difficult. And the game is quite a bit different. You have some rules, blocking rules that are different and you have the, more of the run element in the college game, whereas in the pro game, you've got to do a little bit more work from within the pocket, and you've got to go through reprogression. so there's a much greater understanding of coverages, route concepts, and all things that are really pertinent to have success at the next level. So it's just, it's just that much more difficult, and I think the college game today, while you're having a lot of good quarterbacks, the, the scheme and the spread styles don't translate quite as well to the NFL, which is why some NFL coaches are doing a good job of adjusting some of the NFL styles to fit more of the college scheme, but you know, you can simplify it for them. But as you simplify it, you become easier to defend. So you simplify it, make it easy to get the quarterback on the field. Then you have to expand upon the system and have the quarterback grow within the system. So all of that is a long-winded way of saying it's just a lot tougher um, to to make that transition because the game is quite a bit different. All
1: right. So this year we saw a plethora of quarterbacks taken in the first round. Let's start off Baker Mayfield with Cleveland Browns. I'm a Bills fan. Tyrod Taylor was a uh, Tyrod Taylor is a seven and nine quarterback. He will. Uh, he, all the national reporters said, "Oh, but he doesn't turn the ball over." The problem was is that he couldn't hit open receivers, unless they were open by like five seconds, he would not throw down the field. He would miss wide open guys. So I don't think there's any doubt Baker Mayfield's going to get a start here in the probably first four or five games. But how did you have the quarterbacks ranked? Because Baker Mayfield was taken, then Sam Darnold, Josh Allen went to the Bills, Josh Rosen. How did you have them all ranked?
6: Sam Darnold was the guy that I liked the best uh, because I thought he had the temperament. I thought he had the intangibles. And I thought he had the physical skill set to throw the football outside the pocket. He had good pocket presence. I uh, Turned the football over a bunch. But when you drill down into why a lot of it was he was asked to do things at USC to kind of put his team on the back, uh, on his back and, and try to bring him back from behind. But when you do that, you're going to turn the football over. some. I, I thought he did a tremendous job of putting bad plays behind, him, which is really important that you don't get down. And uh, he's got the physical and the intangible qualities that I think are going to be very successful. And I think the Jets, for the first time in a long time, you can appreciate this, uh, being a Bills fan, touching the Jets. It, it, the last time they've had a quarterback that they've been this excited about is probably Joe Namath. Because, I mean, you can look at the Vinny Testaverde's and guys that they've had that have been, you know, I know some folks like Mark Sanchez, but they, there hasn't been anybody of this elk uh, this helped in some time in, um, in New York for the Jets. So I like him a bunch, and I, I think Baker Mayfield can be good, but I think he needs a little bit more time and a little bit more seasoning. Josh Allen um, uh, with the Bills, as you well aware, Josh Rosen. Some other guys that I think out of this crop can be really good, along with some other guys in the league, like Jimmy Garoppolo, that you know, we've got a good influx of uh, young quarterbacks.
1: Let me say this. Jimmy Garoppolo got to sit and learn behind Tom Brady, mm-hmm. And, and learn and you know people think of of uh, uh, you know when they when they take a look they really everybody looks at at starting a quarterback immediately these days and yet. When you look, I think, at the most successful guys that have come up through the ranks, they've sat maybe a year or two and really learned and took, taken a mentorship. And Aaron Rodgers is a perfect example. And they seem to have greater success when they're able to not play immediately and learn the system, kind of learn the, the, the speed of the game. They seem to do much better in that scenario.
6: I agree. It's my philosophy. You know, I drafted Steve McNair and we sat him. Uh, we thought it was the best thing for him. I think it is the best thing for most quarterbacks. The problem is in today's world, today's society, uh, everyone's making a snap judgment. Um, they, they want a guy to start quick. The owner wants it. They're hitting it from the media and the fans and they're not winning. or why not put the guy in? Well, that's fine and people have this saying that, uh, well, you can't learn if you're not playing. Well, that's not true. Uh, I always say that when a quarterback is ready, and it's different for every player, but when a quarterback is ready, then that's when you want to put him in, not when, hey, he's the best option, let's throw him in there. Because to me, all you're doing is ingraining bad habits if he's not ready. I, I use the golf analogy a lot. If you go to the driving range and you hit a you know, a big bucket of balls, you're not getting better. Practice makes permanent. It doesn't make perfect. You right. need to correct your problem and then hit that bucket of balls, doing it the right way. So I think in in the quarterback position in particular, a lot of these guys, I think their mechanics get flawed. And quite frankly, a lot of guys get ruined by getting into the game a little too quickly, and they never maybe are groomed correctly or the coaching's not quite as good. There's not stability in a system, there's a lot of reasons why we ruin quarterbacks, and often we claim guys as bust when the reality is their careers have been bust, but there have been some guys that have helped bust them, if you will, in terms of uh, poor development.
1: You know, I'll never forget, I played uh, in a celebrity pro am golf tournament, got to be about 15 years ago, and I uh, was playing with a couple of quarterbacks at the time. And I was remarking about how, you know, it's really tough getting some good quarterbacks these days. And they said, no, I'll tell you what the problem is. It's getting good coaches that know how to teach these quarterbacks. And all three of them said it virtually at the same time. Is that a problem where we've got marginal coaches that are, uh, you know, tutoring some of these uh, quarterbacks?
6: I think it's the most undercoached position in football and very often is the case in college. Uh, it is nine times out of 10, the offensive coordinator is the quarterback coach because they call calling the plays or had the relationship with the quarterback. The coordinators tend to be more an overseer of the offense, meaning they're looking at everything, they're looking at um, the play concepts, what to call in certain situations, and they're not spending as much time on the fundamentals of working with the quarterback, the drop step. Uh, the, the the positioning now in the NFL, I've always said without a limit on coaches, which you do have in college on the field coaches uh, in the NFL, everybody should have a quarterback coach that is separate from the coordinator, everyone. Uh, and I do think there is a lack of experience of what I would call quality teachers of the quarterback position. And I think some guys that have played it have been successful. Look at the, some of the best teachers, it's maybe a guy like a Frank Wright, who you're familiar with, that was a backup sure. and a very good one in the league. You know, the best quarterbacks in the league don't want to teach it because, well, they make a lot of money. They don't want to get into coaching. So you're right. not going to get, you know, um, you know. I, I I remember speaking with Joe Montana one time. Um, uh, where we got a mutual friend, and his his young kids were coming up, and he was he was looking for a good quarterback coach. And I'm like, Joe. What do you, he says, oh, my kids don't listen to me. You know, they're like any other kids. You know, so it's like, you know, it's like finding a good quarterback teacher was difficult. And not all these guys, a lot of the good players do it the way they did it, but they're not good teachers and can't really relate to guys because they can't do it as those, the guys they're teaching are not as good as they are and they can't do what they do. And well, that's how I did it. Good teachers, as you well know, and all of our listeners know that. It's about being able to touch a student in a different way, and I don't think we have as enough good quarterback teachers, and I think a lot of it is taught on scheme and decision-making and reads and not enough on the mechanics of playing and throwing the position and the ball handling and whatnot.
1: And that's why a lot of these quarterbacks uh, that come into the league and, and hide draft picks actually hire their own quarterback coaches, these experts. I think Carson Palmer's what? brother is one of them yeah. out in California and, and has worked with him. Our guest is and, and Chris by the Landry. Way, by the way, if Go I ahead.
6: could jump in there and say, you know, here's the biggest problem we got, is even though we don't have the – you know that there is a – uh, in, the, in the collective bargaining agreement, players cannot spend time with their coaches in the season. That's the biggest reason why they're hiring these coaches, individual coaches. How crazy is that, that a player that comes into the league, he can't spend time in the offseason talking football with his position coach. How is that?
1: yeah, that is absurd. It's really a full-time job, and yes. you don't have to have contact, but these players are paid full-time money. It's not like the old days where they need a summer job uh, or an off-season job, but I totally agree. Our guest is Chris and, Landry and, and of gotta, Landry. And they got
6: to pay their money. I'm sorry. I mean, they got to pay their own money to hire these coaches. It's ridiculous, but
1: – well, listen, I don't feel badly about that when these guys are walking in making $14 million, you know, a season guaranteed. I think they can swing it, but I agree with you. I think they should be able to have contact with their coaches in the It's a full-time job. It's not a part-time job. Our guest is Chris Landry of LandryFootball.com. When we continue for the final and concluding segment of this edition of the Cigar Dave Show, we will do our NFL preview. We'll look at each uh, division, and we'll predict who we think will be in the Super Bowl as we continue Around the Corner.
0: Get the latest cigars, hand-picked by the General, each month, delivered straight to your door when you join the Cigar Dave Officers Club. For just $22.95 a month, you'll receive three premium cigars in a customized Ziploc Cigar Dave pouch. To join, go to CigarDave.com.
1: The Cigar Dave Show is available 24-7, 365 via the Cigar Dave mobile app for Android, iPhone, as well as Amazon Kindle. You don't need to be in front of a radio. You just need to have your mobile device ready to go. And you can listen to me take on the enemies of pleasure. Talk about the alpha male good life as we talk cigars, spirits, diversions, grilling, and Go and download the Cigar Dave mobile app presented by Diamond Crown. Never miss a minute of a Cigar Dave show with the Cigar Dave mobile app.
5: Hi, this is Rocky Patel. If you're a beginner or if you just enjoy a great mild cigar like I do in the morning, I suggest you try the Vintage 99. This 7-year-old Connecticut wrapper delivers a creamy mild, smooth flavor. It's very, very balanced on your palate, and it absolutely is delightful. Tons of flavor, a perfect draw, and an incredible ash. This cigar is smooth. It will entice you to enjoying more and more of the vintage 99s. It's just a nice, great, balanced, smooth cigar. Look for it, the oldest Connecticut shape in the market today. I'm Rocky Patel, and I promise you, Nobody works harder than we do to make you a great quality cigar. Come visit us at RockyPatel.com.
0: Surgeon General Warning, cigar smoking can cause cancer and heart disease.
1: All right, in our remaining minutes, now we're going to hit uh, each division in the National Football League and uh, do our prognostications. little preview. Chris Landry of LandryFootball.com, noted scout, noted uh, draft expert. Chris, first up, AFC, AFC East. Let's just stop right here. My Buffalo Bill's going to take it all.
6: There you go. Well, <laughs> no, no need to add more, more to that. And, uh, that would be an uh, uh, eye-popping uh, the story that is New England. What a dominant performance they've had. Um, no uh, doubt. It's going be awfully tough to beat, but it is going to be interesting to see who can make that race to be number two. Buffalo, the Jets, I like a little bit more than the Dolphins at this point.
1: Well, I'll tell you what. The Bills, I think, are in a transition year offensive line a little tough. But I think what's going to be interesting, you know, the Jets and Bills seem to be doing it the right way. No shortcuts, drafting, uh, no big-time free agents. you got to build it through the draft. And uh, there eventually will be a changing of the guard in the AFC East. The question is when. But this year, New England odds-on favorite. Now, AFC North. Great game to start, actually. You've got Pittsburgh and Cleveland. That's a bitter rivalry. But uh, in that division, I mean, Pittsburgh still seems to be the odds-on favorite.
6: I think so. Uh, I think Cleveland will be better. Maybe they could make a run towards five hundred. Uh, maybe get to six, seven at least. Uh, maybe they they get it done um, this weekend. Is uh, Pittsburgh's kind of coming in with outlay the unveil? I, I still like the Steelers. We got the best defense. Uh, Baltimore is still pretty good defensively, but they've got to get more consistency out of the quarterback position. Cincinnati um, is maybe a team that could be overtaken by Cleveland, but I, I suspect that they're going to fight for the third and fourth spots, those two, and probably five, six wins is about the best they can do, I would think.
1: All right, real quickly, AFC South, I think that could be one of the best divisions in football. Houston, great quarterback. Indianapolis, Andrew Luck is back. Jacksonville uh, made a deep run last year. Could be a pretty good uh, competitive balance in the AFC South.
6: Boy, I agree. I think it's a great division. I think only Indianapolis lacks the roster to compete, and obviously Andrew Luck is back. But Tennessee's a good team. I like Houston and Jacksonville. Jacksonville is the best roster overall in the AFC Can they get enough out of the quarterback position? Can Houston get some breaks from an injury standpoint? Good defense, dynamic young quarterback. Um, I might go with Houston here, but it's, to me, Houston and Jacksonville in the end fighting for it out. All
1: right, AFC West, uh, Broncos uh, sign uh, Case Keenum, Kansas City, Patrick Mahomes. Chargers always look good. The Raiders, I can tell you one thing, I don't see them winning that division under Gruden in any way, shape, or form.
6: Yeah, I think the Raiders to me clearly look like the fourth best team in the division and I think the other three are pretty close. I give the Chargers a little bit of an edge. They've had a tough run of it injury wise. They've got a really good looking roster. I think the Chiefs are good and I think the Broncos are a good defensive team that will be improved on offense. I think all three of those teams are capable of winning the division. Uh, It might be a 10 um, definitely 11 win get you in good shape in that division.
1: All right, we move to the NFC, NFC East. Eagles won their first game. Going to be interesting to see how they do because they lost a lot of key coaches. Uh, Dallas, mediocre year last year. Giants kind of rebuilding. Redskins, who knows? They lost their quarterback. Any predictions on that? you think Eagles still odds-on favorite? I think
6: they are. I think they have the best roster in that division, um, and certainly when they get Carson Wentz back, they'll be a little bit more consistent on offense. I worry about Dallas. Their strength is the offensive line They've not started off the the year healthy there. Uh, I don't know that they're good enough defensively to be more than what they've been, and that's a 500 team. The Giants, I think, will be improved. Could finish as high as second in the division. Uh, Washington, I have some concerns about. Uh, don't like their roster. I think their roster uh, is right with Dallas, probably a little bit below Dallas uh, in the NFC's. All
1: right, NFC North, you got the Bears, Lions, Packers, Vikings. To me, it's I think it's a shootout between the Packers and the Vikings.
6: Yeah, I think the Vikings have the best uh, roster uh, in the NFC, and uh, I think that that the quarterback position is stabilized and maybe even a little bit more productive in terms of big plays. I think they probably win it. What gives the Packers a chance is Aaron Rodgers. He's outstanding. Um, And, you know, I think he's good enough to get them in the division race and make the playoffs, just not good enough around him to go and win another Super Bowl. The Lions have started off the year poorly in preseason, but we'll see whether they can run the football well. The team to look out for is the Bears. The addition of Khalil Mack will help them. If Trubisky can be improved with improved weapons at receiver, they could challenge uh, for maybe a second spot and be an above 500 team.
1: All right, let's take a look at the last two divisions. We've got about a minute and a half. So NFC South, Panthers, Saints, Buccaneers, Falcons.
6: Love this division. I think they're all really good teams, all improved. The Bucks are better, but still think uh, they're fourth in the division. Carolina, uh, I would probably put near in that third spot. And then I think it's the Saints in Atlanta, if they all stay healthy or the best. I think the Saints defense has consistently gotten better. I would give the Saints the edge because of Drew Brees, but I think it's a toss-up. Probably 10-11 wins, uh, wins this division. It wouldn't surprise me. If we had maybe two teams uh, uh, from this division getting into the playoffs, uh, I think a wild card's definitely coming out of it.
1: All right, real quickly, the NFC West, Arizona, the Rams, the 49ers, the Seahawks, that division has gotten much better. I'll tell you what, a lot of people predicting the Rams are going to go all the way this year.
6: Well, they've got the best roster in the West, so I I think that that's a a safe uh, look going into the season. I think the Niners are getting better. Don't count out the Seahawks. You know, certainly are a veteran team in some areas, still a quality team. I think the Cardinals are a little bit rebuilding. I don't think it's a given that the Rams dominate the division, but I still think they're the best team in the division and will end up on top.
1: All right, so now we go to predictions. Who's going to be in the big game?
6: You know, it's so tough, but I would probably say Minnesota. uh, Just if I'm looking at it in terms of a roster – I would say Minnesota might uh, edge out in the NFC. The NFC is tougher, by the way, than the AFC. The AFC, it's, it's just, you know, I want to say somebody other than New England to just be creative, but I'm not convinced at this point that uh, Pittsburgh's good enough to do it. Um, maybe, you know, uh, the Texans are healthy enough to be in a, that position. Jacksonville, uh, I just think that in, in New England, because they usually dominate the division. They are a given to win 11 games and likely get home field advantage. Good luck going to Gillette and trying to beat So. I'm going to say
1: New England and Minnesota just to throw out uh, a guess. New England and Minnesota. Chris Landry of LandryFootball.com. Okay, Chris, greatly appreciate you joining us today for the NFL preview. My Bills take on the Ravens. We'll see what happens, but we'll have you on throughout the season. Cigar, Dave. The general saying: Mayor humidor always be full. Mayor Cutter always be sharp. Mayor Ashby extra, extra long. Semper Delectatio. Always pleasure. Long live the Alpha. Make America great again. Make masculinity great again. Go Bills. I know this is not going to be the year, but I like the direction. NFL football is back. Life is good.